Welcome back to the Dark and Stormy podcast and our third installment in our series of episodes focused on the 27 Club, that fateful, tragic group of artists and creatives who strangely all passed on far too soon at the age of 27. Remember, if you're a fan of the show, please rate, review, subscribe and tell a friend. And if you'd like to support us on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening. And now to the next on our list. When Brian Jones died, a fellow rock star and poet wrote a poem for him called An Ode to L.A. While Thinking of Brian Jones, Deceased. The last stanza of which reads, Requiem for a heavy, that smile, that porky satyr's leer, has leaped upward into the loam. Exactly two years to the day following the death of Brian Jones, on July 3rd, 1969, this poet would join him in the loam, at the very same age of 27. It had been just nine months since the deaths of Hendrix and Joplin. The fourth 27-year-old to unexpectedly and tragically die within this fateful two-year period, when rock and roll suffered unspeakable loss, was a musician known as much, if not more, for his stage presence, antics and drunken posse than for his musical talent. Though it is without question, he could certainly sing. He was born James Douglas Morrison on December 8, 1943, in Melbourne, Florida. His childhood was not a happy one. His father had been in the military and was extremely strict and emotionally detached. And by the time Morrison joined the doors, he had little to no contact with his family. In 1966, Morrison was 22 and enrolled at UCLA to study film. However, shortly after his arrival, he had a chance meeting that resulted in him becoming the lead singer of one of the greatest rock bands of all time. He met Ray Manzarek, a keyboardist and fellow film scholar on Venice Beach by happenstance, and Manzarek met guitarist Robbie Krieger and drummer John Densmore at a Transcendental Meditation Lecture. Together, they formed a fledgling band, and now all they needed was a name. All of them were young intellectuals, and Morrison especially loved poetry, so it was natural that they named themselves after an Aldous Huxley book called The Doors of Perception. This book in itself was named after a William Blake poem, which mused, If the doors of perception were cleansed, then everything would be as it is, infinite. And so they became the doors. How intriguing that a poet who'd been dead for almost a century and a half could so similarly echo the psychedelic mindsets of the freethinkers of the 1960s. Robbie was a master of the bottleneck guitar, and Ray was so skilled on the keyboard that he is still consistently mentioned as one of the greatest keyboardists of all time. He played the organ on many of the Doors songs, a unique feature that set the group apart from many other bands of that era. And John Densmore's drumming was the very backbone of the band's music. Together they created propulsive smash hits with driving percussion and evocative lyrics, perfect for drunkenly dancing to at a bar. 
They also composed slow, melancholic songs, which perfectly showcased Morrison's vocal ability. Melodies that allowed him to hit both high and low notes with his distinctively husky voice. Not long into their career, the band scored a residency at a bar called London Fog on Hollywood's Sunset Strip. They played for several hours a night, six nights a week, and each of them made about $40 a week. Their set list featured a lot of covers, including blues music from Muddy Waters, and there was also a go-go dancer in a cage that would gyrate provocatively to their music. It wasn't necessarily the classiest place to form a music career, but it was a start. John Densmore would later reflect on that time, reminiscing that their main audience was usually sailors and perverts. If nothing else, It was a place to gain experience in front of an audience, even if it was only a handful of drunken louts. Morrison's poetic temperament rose to the surface when the band began writing and performing their own music. He didn't play any instruments and was unable to write music himself, but he could create melodies and lyrics as they occurred to him and the other band members would compose the music. What they created in their short tenure together with all the original band members was inspired by a range of genres, including blues, Indian music, flamenco and jazz. This broad spectrum of influence led to an incredibly diverse back catalogue. Morrison was arguably the star of the show, but unlike other front men, he insisted that all the band members be represented equally and demanded they split the credits for everything they wrote. He refused to overshadow the other members and greatly respected their musical fortitude. Along with deep symbolic poetry, he was fond of philosophy and spiritualism with a special interest in Native American culture and folklore. He was fascinated by the desert and dubbed himself the Lizard King. This was harshly juxtaposed with his onstage persona. For countless women, he was the embodiment of sex, swaggering across the stage clad in tight leather pants and little else, with tousled dark hair and smouldering eyes. He had undeniable charisma and was the quintessential quiet and sensitive bad boy. Once they left London Fog, they played almost nightly for several months at Whiskey A Go-Go, a legendary LA establishment, and here they made connections with a record producer with whom they recorded their debut album, The Doors. It was released in January of 1967. Within just a few years of meeting and forming their band, they had recorded one of the greatest debut albums of all time, one that reached number two on the Billboard charts and has since sold millions of copies. The album is ranked number 42 on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest albums of all time, and the magazine described it as a stoned, immaculate classic. It features mainstream hits like Light My Fire, along with more experimental songs like The End, a 12-minute psychedelic epic with Eastern influences. The song has a spoken word section with Oedipal themes, which in fact led the band to be dismissed from Whiskey A Go-Go. It is also now indelibly linked to the Vietnam War, 
after Francis Ford Coppola featured it in the film Apocalypse Now. In September of that same year, the band's second album, Strange Days, was released, and equally successful as their debut, reaching number three on the Billboard charts. Between 1968 and 1971, the band released five more albums, and while they all received critical acclaim and commercial success, none proved as triumphant as their self-titled debut. Their last album, L.A. Woman, which was released mere months before Morrison's death, had more of a blues influence and was considered by many critics to be a close second to their debut. Throughout his entire short life, Morrison was constantly surrounded by women. In the early years of the band, he never even had his own place and would simply stay at the houses of his various girlfriends. One woman who would remain a constant in his life was Pamela Colson. They were off and on from the time they met in college right up until his death. They considered themselves soulmates but had a very rocky and seemingly open relationship and Morrison would have flings with countless groupies and other musicians, allegedly even Janis Joplin. He had a long-distance relationship with a journalist named Patricia Canelli, and in 1970 they had a hand-fasting ceremony, a pagan ritual to celebrate a union of two people. While this can be secured into a legal marriage, Morrison and Patricia never made it official. Though he clearly had an obsession with women, Morrison's true vice was alcohol. His bandmates knew of his addiction, but had no idea how to help him. Alcohol seemed to turn Morrison dark and moody, and he found himself in trouble often. At a 1967 show in New Haven, Connecticut, Morrison was maced by a cop while making out with a woman backstage. He then went on stage and taunted the cops with curse words before he was arrested for public obscenity. At another drunken concert in 1969 in Miami, Morrison was inebriated and urged dozens of audience members to join him on stage. At one point, he allegedly pulled the most popular member of the band from his pants, and he was found guilty of public exposure and was pardoned decades after his death. He had several other small brushes with the law, usually involving drunkenness in public. The band was also notorious for inciting riots, but in reality it was simply Morrison urging the audience to stand up and dance while he often discussed starting a revolution. By 1971, Morrison was a mess. His onstage antics had created all sorts of negative publicity for the band and they had to cancel shows. He had a pending appeal in relation to the public indecency charge and overall he was highly stressed and unhinged. He drank beer all day, had gained a lot of weight and was experiencing the full effect of his unhealthy lifestyle. That year, he went to Paris to stay with Pamela in an attempt to take a break from his life and to focus on writing and exploring the city. Over the last few months, he had apparently been experiencing respiratory distress and kept copping up blood, though he was still drinking heavily 
and frequenting clubs and bars. Like many of the musicians we have already discussed, Morrison's death remains somewhat of a mystery. The story told by Pamela Corson is that she and Morrison went to see an old western called Pursued at a theatre and then went to their apartment to listen to music and fall asleep. In the early hours of July 3rd, 1971, he awoke feeling unwell and went to take a bath. A few hours later, once the day had started, Pamela awoke to find Morrison dead in the bathtub. She kept his death a secret from the media and she and a few friends had a tiny private burial ceremony before anyone really knew he had passed. There was no autopsy, but the official ruling was death from heart failure. Unsurprisingly, there are many contradictory stories surrounding the circumstances of Morrison's death. A friend of his named Sam Burnett, manager of the Rock and Roll Circus in Paris, claims that Morrison actually died in the bathroom of his club after snorting heroin. He claimed that dealers wanted to cover up the death and so took his body to the apartment and staged the scene to make it look like he'd died of natural causes. Following his club management days, Burnett became a journalist and wrote a tell-all book about Morrison's death called The End. Another writer named Patrick Chavelle claimed to have seen two men carrying Morrison's limp body up the stairs at a club. And yet another theory, posited by singer Marion Faithful, was that while she remained in her hotel room, her ex-boyfriend stopped by Morrison's apartment and sold him the heroin that ultimately killed him. This ex-boyfriend had allegedly had a relationship with Pamela Coulson at one point, and Marion Faithful, you may remember, was Mick Jagger's girlfriend at the time of Brian Jones's death. Someone is clearly lying, as in Burnett's tell-all, apparently Faithful was at the Rock and Roll Circus Club at the time of Morrison's death, and like Burnett himself, was sworn to secrecy by the drug dealers and the club owner. Notably, many friends of Morrison's assert that he never did hard drugs and was adamantly against them. He could happily drink dozens of beers on any given day, but he never did heroin. What is known for a fact is that the actions of Coulson and a few close friends following Morrison's death likely intensified some of the suspicion around his death. As previously mentioned, his death was kept secret from media and even family members for several days following his death. A friend of his arranged his burial in Pierre Lachaise Cemetery, where he finally rested amidst the graves of famous writers such as Molière and Oscar Wilde, as well as beloved musicians like Edith Piaf and Frédéric Chopin. He was buried before most of the world were even aware he'd died. To many, his death signified the final nail in the coffin of the hope-filled peace and love mentality of the 1960s. Morrison had been a rebellious counterculture icon, and his death, following so closely the deaths of Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix, and Janice Joplin, along with the shocking Manson family murders, seemed for many to abruptly slam the door on the 1960s and usher in the gritty, dark 1970s with Vietnam War atrocities, staggeringly high crime rates, and of course, a massive presidential scandal and impeachment. It's likely the real truth of Morrison's death will never be known. 
Pamela Colson died in 1974 of an overdose. She too at the age of 27. And while Sam Burnett and Marion Faithful are both still alive, they have told very contradictory stories of that night. While their stories vary, they do have one specific fact in common, that Morrison's death was caused by heroin. Is it easier to believe that a 27-year-old man died of abrupt heart failure for no reason, or that he died of heart failure caused by an overdose? We must also mention the subsection of people who believe that Morrison faked his own death. Seeing as how only a couple of people witnessed his body before burial, it's not difficult to understand where this theory may come from. It does, however, seem unlikely, since there have been no sightings of Morrison and he has somehow managed to stay under the radar for all these years. Even 50 years after his death, Morrison has admiring fans that want to be near him and his grave continues to be one of the most visited in the world. His grave and those surrounding it have been vandalised so many times over the years that the cemetery has put up a metal barricade across the grave and assigned guards to stand watch. A few decades ago, a bust of Morrison that had been placed at the gravesite was stolen, never to be seen again. While the cemetery certainly wouldn't appreciate these stunts, it's likely they would have appealed to Morrison's anti-establishment beliefs. At the time of Morrison's death, there were over a dozen paternity suits filed against him. One has remained in the news after all these years. As his story goes, Cliff Morrison believed for the first part of his life that his father had died in the Vietnam War. Then, one day, his mother Lorraine unexpectedly revealed that his father was in fact Jim Morrison. This revelation changed Cliff's life and he immersed himself in music and formed the Lizard Sun Band. He continues to present himself as Morrison's son, but there is no specific information on whether there was ever any DNA match that might prove this. Cliff has been in and out of prison over the years and has his own drug demons to battle. In recent months, he has written a yet-to-be-released non-fiction book called Morrisonland, which also has a film in the works chronicling Cliff's life. It is difficult not to be sceptical of this story when there is no real proof of any connection between Cliff Morrison and the musical legend that is Jim Morrison. Thank you for listening to this third instalment. Keep that nightlight on because you never know what's awaiting you in the dark. Tell you, I tell you